I want to welcome you to this episode of Making Waves. I'm not going to lie to you. I uh, am finding this one a little bit difficult, and I'll tell you why. I'm going to talk some about my testimony. If you've uh, heard me speak before, you know I, I tie testimony in a lot to my messages because I believe it is so important. And you know, the Word even tells us that we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the Word of our testimony. So that's what I encourage uh, men and women to do everywhere I go. And it's easy to do a bit here and a bit there. Um, but today I'm going to actually try to uh, go a little bit deeper in that. I, it won't be a complete testimony because that would take forever. But I'm going to try to make it a little fuller than I usually do because I think it's important. And it also ties into why I am doing this podcast, which is called Making Waves. Uh, the whole idea behind Making Waves is that, you know, a wave starts with a ripple. And I believe that if each of us would would really walk by that scripture, that that not just we are overcomers, but other people will overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony, then that's a ripple which creates another ripple, which creates two, which four, six, and then you you really are making waves. And this uh, this podcast is also I want it to be about honest conversations about real issues that people really do face. I don't. There's no cover up here. And so that's part of why I feel led to kind of go into my testimony so you kind of understand who I am and uh, wh- how I've landed where I've landed. And and uh, so, you know, I have a book that's called Held in the Grip of Grace that I was actually asked to write that has bits of my testimony in it that can be used as a Bible study. Uh, my kids even said after they read it, they're like, gosh, mom, I wish you had developed this a little bit more. I wanted to hear more. I wanted to see more of it. But the book, which you can get at pathwaybookstore.com, was more designed that people can see themselves in it, you know, and see the resolution in it. And so I've had so many people ask about the rest of the story. So I'm gonna I'm gonna try to do that today. Um, it's kind of difficult sometimes to go back and even remembering details. So uh, anyway, we're gonna get into it. And um, you know, a lot of you know that uh, you know I was uh, put up for adoption as a baby. Um, my I was uh, conceived by two teenage kids who were on drugs. I was conceived in the back of a van um, at a time that that brought lots of shame, especially in my birth mother's family, lots of shame on their family. Uh, this was not something that people talked about. And so when my birth mother, whose name is Pam, found out that she was pregnant, she was devastated because she was so afraid of how her father and how her mother were going to look at her, uh, the rejection that would happen, uh, and the shame that, that she would bring on her family. So immediately her first thought was, you know, how do I get rid of this? How do I get rid of this problem? Uh, the first chapter of my book is called what doesn't kill you makes you stronger uh, because that is what she you know tried to do she tried to eliminate uh, me in the womb uh, she tried to take matters into her own hands because abortion was not legal at the time so she tried to throw herself down a flight of stairs she tried to throw herself off chairs she tried to starve herself uh, just hoping that she would miscarry hoping that it would go away she would hope that she'd wake up and the next morning it would be gone well, that did not happen. Um, so she started getting, you know, it was more evident that she was pregnant. Her mother walked in on her while she was in the bathroom and and saw that she was pregnant. And just as Pam feared, her mother was devastated and there was nothing but 
judgment and condemnation that came because there was such shame uh, that 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 her mother felt was brought into the family uh, to the point that they would, you know, if company came over, they would make her go to the basement because they did not want anybody to see that she was pregnant. So imagine this this 16, 17-year-old kid who is carrying this 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 unwanted thing, and and this is the kind of um, reception that she's getting, the kind of treatment that she's getting. So she is in living living a hell, really. And so her parents had really good friend who was the family doctor, and they called him and said, "Listen." We need you to find a medical reason to eliminate this problem. And he said, bring her in. I will take care of it for you. They said, we need you to find a legal, a way to, a medical reason uh, to to get rid of it. So he, they brought her in. He took her in to an examining room. And he said, listen, Pam, I don't know how to tell you this, but you are two weeks too late. If you had gotten here just a couple of weeks before, we could have taken care of this, eliminated this problem, but you're just two weeks too late. So I'm so sorry. So the family's devastated. Pam is devastated. So the next option is adoption. And so they take her to a home for unwed mothers. And I want to stop there for just a second because, you know, one of the, you know, one of my favorite organizations when I find them in different cities are people who give pregnant women an option rather than them feeling like their only option is abortion. So I love these these organizations that that you know they help find a place for the baby and not only that but they they help to bring wor- feelings of worth and love and acceptance to the mother. Well this is not the situation that my birth mother found herself in, the birth, the the home for unwed mothers was almost like a prison. And there was, I mean, it was on the edge of almost being abusive. And so it just further uh, made her feel like she, you know, had ruined her life and that she was dirty, that she was unclean and just really treated them almost like animals. Um, so think of all this trauma that she's feeling. Well, I believe, I know, that trauma uh, can can be absorbed into the womb. So I believe that I, as a baby, was actually born into trauma. And with that, you know, with anybody that's experienced trauma, then there are issues that come along with that. And that's, you know, what happened to me. Um, so I was, you know, born there um, in a hospital near the home for unwed mothers. And they gave her the opportunity to see me, to hold me, but she... Uh, she didn't want that. She didn't want any part of it. She wanted it to be gone. She didn't want to think about it anymore. She didn't even know if I was a boy or a girl. And so I was put up for adoption in a good Christian home, uh, grew up in the Pentecostal Holiness Church, uh, where my parents attended, where my grandfather was uh, a pastor there. And, you know, I am very, very thankful to have that heritage that I was, you know, even though it was definitely not perfect, and I'll talk a little bit about that, um, even just the worship part of it, you know, I can't listen to to any of those old songs without it bringing me to tears because even in the middle of a lot of trauma, um, the Lord really, really started calling to me through that. But my family my, that I was born into, they, were, they already had two sons. They had been waiting for a little baby girl. Um, 
But, you know, because of how they were raised, this was not a family that was uh, generous with uh, words of affirmation or even saying, I love you or affection, you know, hugging, kissing, cuddling. Uh, my grandparents even counseled my my mother and said, listen, when you put her to bed, don't ever lay next to her. You know, if you lay next to her, put a pillow in between you because you don't want her to be spoiled. And, you know, there was just such a feeling of distance and not belonging. And I don't know, I can't speak to all children who were put up for adoption, but I almost feel like I was almost a little bit special needs in that there were some things that were missing that I needed even kind of overcompensating for just those words of affirmation of just a feeling of belonging. And without that there, you know, really leads to some identity issues, you know, and I do not blame my adopted parents because they, I know they loved me and I know they did the best that they could uh, with what they had to work with, Uh, but it did leave some voids in my life. And so, you know, speaking about words of affirmation, uh, you know, and how words are important, you know, and if if you don't get anything else that I talk about today, I cannot stress heavily enough how our words carry so much weight, life or death. And so I say to you, moms and dads, please speak life to your children, speak life over your children, speak the word of God over your children, and be so careful about speaking things loosely to them. One little phrase, can be a life changer. It can be a life taker. You know, when if we if we call our kid fat or silly or worthless or um, you know you're never going to be good enough or you know the words mean so much. And there were words that were spoken, you know, in jest to me that that to this day I still have to take to the foot of Jesus and say, please, you know, I need you to I need to continue walking in in getting healing from this. Um, but one of those things my my adopted mom she was all about things being clean and so her house was always clean she you know just everything had to be clean including including her children well you know again being adopted i came from a Native American background, so I was very dark, especially as a child, while I was placed in my adopted family, who they are very fair. Uh, So there was, I definitely didn't look like anybody. Um, In the summertime, because I played outside all the time, I would get so incredibly dark. My skin would get very, very dark. And you know those little folds around your neck, the little wrinkles. And so they would almost be black. I mean, they would get so, so dark. Well, it drove my mother crazy. So she, every day, she's like, get over here. I need to scrub your neck, you dirty little girl. You know, so I, you know, I laugh about it now. I mean, it just drove her insane. She would get me down and scrub and scrub and scrub. Well, you can't get that clean because it's my skin. You know, and, you know, I can laugh about it now, but looking back and kind of seeing that path and realizing that, you know, I actually thought myself to be a grubby little girl. That's an, another chapter in, in Held in the Grip of Grace. It's called Grubby Little Girl, and it's about rejection and labels. And that really stuck with me. And I found myself even as, you know, in friendships and in uh, boy-girl relationships, just never feeling clean enough, good enough. And when you're told that, then you almost, it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, you, if you're not clean enough, then don't be clean. And so, you know, I would find myself in relationships, uh, 
you know, and not even be able to set boundaries in them to ever say no, because I felt because I'm this dirty little girl, or I'm this unclean person, you know, I should be lucky, you know, I wasn't even supposed to be here. I'm, you know, I was a mistake. It's an accident that I'm here. I'm really almost like an alien from another planet. So if anybody pays me any attention, then I should be thankful for that. So I will never like say no to anybody or set a boundary, which led me into some really toxic relationships because I just always felt unclean, unwanted. And on that unclean thing, you know, just how those labels can carry into adulthood. Um, I, you know, even as an adult, there was a word given, you know, how we love to get a word in church when I was going to marry my husband. You know, and I was divorced, um, and we were dating, and he wanted to marry me, and there were there were a few people that were not happy about that because I had been divorced. Well, we were. Um, it was after church one day, and this couple, you know, comes and gives us a, a sticky note with gives it to Jonathan and says, you know, I have a word from the Lord. Well, of course, we all love a good word from the Lord, and so we're both excited, and we'd had so many people prophesy over our mar- you know, our future relationship, over what our ministry was. Going going to be and all these things. So we just knew it was going to be more of that. So we get this word knowing it's going to be, you know, something prophetic about our future. And when we get in the car, we're headed to lunch after church and Jonathan says, look it up, look it up. And so I look it up and it's scripture about being an unclean woman. And it was like I was seven years old again. And so it is so important, the words that we speak, that the words that we speak over people, they are either life or they are death. And they are they can be such deep soul wounds, such deep trauma wounds, what we speak over people. And if that's been, things like that, if that's happened to you, I'm so sorry. I am so sorry, but I, I am here as a living testimony that God can heal you from that. When we know who we are in Him, when we get in His Word and see who we are to him. You know, so again, back to my growing up years, you know, wanting, just never feeling like I belonged anywhere, not feeling like I was good enough. Uh, you know, there wasn't any those words of affirmation. My uh, my adopted mother, she ended up getting pregnant at age 40 with my little sister, um, who ended up finding out when she was about 11 years old that she was, that she had cancer, a very rare childhood cancer. And uh, so they began battling through that. And I found, I, I saw that as an opportunity that because my parents were paralyzed by this news. So I'm like, I'm going to come in and be the hero. I'm going to save the day. And I thought to myself, if I can come in and be their hero and be the glue that holds it all together, then will they love me? Then will they love me? Well, I just, you know, they were paralyzed. So I, at, a very young age, I stepped in there and made myself in charge of my sister's care. And I wish I could say it was from a pure place. Now, I loved her. I loved my sister. But but this was coming purely from a place of, again, desperate to find my own place. And so I kind of took over the care of that, spent, you know, 40 days at a time in the hospital with her, uh, took charge of her treatment, even went, you know, before a board of, of uh, hospital administrators and uh, oncologists and surgeons to to fight them when they were trying to force her to do treatments and, and she didn't want to do it anymore. And so a, a burden that... You know, someone my age and in my position should never have carried. That was not my burden to carry, but I did it because I thought that it would cause them to approve of me. And so, 
you know, again, trying to find my place and, of course, always coming up empty because I had not found the place. You know, I was trying to find it in these people, but there's only one person that we find our identity in, that we find our worth in. And when you don't know who you are, that's going to affect every decision, every relationship that you're in. And that's exactly what happened to me. And this went on for years, um, even to the point of putting yourself in the wrong places, you know, uh, taking risks you never should because you don't feel worthy of protection. You don't feel worthy of being cared for. I ended up getting raped in high school, and that's never, ever the girl's fault. Um, so I'm not saying that at all, but I put myself in situations that were dangerous because I didn't feel like I was worth anything more than that. And then later I ended up, I had a boyfriend uh, in high school uh, who was white. Uh, and I say that because while I was his uh, girlfriend, I ended up having kind of a secret relationship with an older guy at a place of my work who was a black guy. And I ended up getting pregnant uh, as a 17-year-old and not certain whose the baby was going to be. And, you know, this was at a time where uh, that was going to be kind of an awkward an awkward thing. And so I just kind of tried to pretend that it wasn't happening. And this was also happening around the same time that my sister was going through all of her health stuff. So here I am, a pregnant teenager, not knowing if I'm having a white baby or a black baby and having no idea who the father is and, and how I'm going to explain it, but also dealing with all of this pressure of trying to be the head of my family at this really young age. And so it was just lies, lies, more lies. And, you know, when you tell one lie, that leads to another lie, which leads to another lie. And so it's just I found myself just living whatever version, you know, I would acclimate like a chameleon to the situation that I was in. I was going to be whoever that person wanted me to be. There was never a Christie. I never knew who I was. So here I am not knowing who the father of this baby is going to be. I've also put myself in the position of, as a teenager, being the head of the household, taking care of my sister's health care. And so I was literally to a breaking point. I mean, in my mind, it was all this pressure and just feeling like, A, I'm wanting to find my position in my family, but then also the guilt and shame and the fear of the unknown of what what is this going to look like. So I ended up, you know, giving birth to a beautiful baby girl um, who is uh, biracial. Um, she is uh, my heart. Um, but but that in itself even caused, even for her, even just growing up in a very, very white community and being biracial. Um, and I even made up a story as to why she looked the way she did, because I'm adopted and because of my heritage. So rather than just being honest about what happened, you know, we just kind of chalked it up to, and my family just went along with it, you know, this must have something to do with, um, you know, your nationality. So just more lies, 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 whenever I knew what the what the truth was. Um, so I have my little girl, so here I am, this... Uh, you know, very young girl trying to go to college at this point with this little baby, uh, helping my parents with the situation with my sister. And um, then, you know, sadly, uh, after a battle with this 
with with this disease, my sister ended up passing away. And, uh, you know, that was very, very traumatic. And again, my parents continued to be paralyzed for a little bit, and, and I'm still trying to kind of be the head of that household uh, until kind of that resolved itself. But then once it was over, and it, you know, I had put myself in that position, I found my identity in being her you know, healthcare person for so long, being in charge of her health and being this, taking this role in my family, that once that was gone, then there was this huge gap. There was this huge hole because I've had this hole my whole life and I was trying to fill it with other things and other positions and trying to find my identity and other things. And so now this huge chunk is now gone. And so I found myself just very depressed and lots of anxiety and and what that ended up leading to, where I felt like my whole world was kind of out of control because I did not know where to land, and I didn't know who I was. Now, I'm going to church here and there. You know, I've given my life to Christ. Um, I've been baptized multiple times. Um, but, you know, we, I, I hope that all of us can understand that we can be believers. You know, we can believe in Jesus and still not be free. We, I mean, He came and gave us the gift of freedom, but so often many of us, you know, even though we've we've, you know, we were set for heaven, we're headed to heaven, but it's almost like we're in a cage and the door's wide open. All we have to do is walk out, but we just stay in the cage because we don't really understand the gift that it is that he's given us. I mean, he gives us perfect righteousness. You know, when he looks at us, he sees us as flawless. And it's it's something that we have to we have to take. And I had I didn't understand that. Uh, so I'm still bound and so I'm trying to find some order in this very chaotic life that I'm living in. And, you know, a lot of times what people do when they're trying to find something they can control is they end up with an addiction. And so what I ended up, you know, and I don't even know how it happened, but I, you know, I had kind of lost my appetite because of all this stress and I started losing a little bit of weight. And that really started feeling good to me because it felt like something that I was in control of. It really didn't even have to do with losing weight. It was that I knew, you know, by my action, I could control something. And it, for the first time in a long time, I felt like it was something I could control. So I found myself in a very deep, life-threatening situation with anorexia and uh, and bulimia both at the same time and so I was I was starving myself first and got down to just a crazy weight uh, but then that led even to some bulimic behavior to the point that I was ingesting sometimes an entire box or two boxes of laxatives in one day to the point that there it was skipping the whole digestive process and things looked the same pardon me when they came out that they did as they as they when they went in I started losing my hair my teeth started getting loose. Um, I was starting to have blackouts. I was a full-time college student at the time, and it was just a real mess. And I had a really good friend who she was scared to death, and so she ended up kind of ratting me out. At, I called someone in at my at the university that I was attending, and the next thing you know, I'm pulled into a, an office, and they have threatened that you know if I don't get help, they're going to make sure that I do get help. So ended up checking myself into a um, mental health hospital, and I was there for 28 days. And uh, again, I keep referencing 
my book, Held in the Grip of Grace, there's a chapter in there. It's called 28 Days and No One to Help Me into the Pool. And, you know, we're familiar with that story, you know, of the the guy that was sitting by the pool of Bethesda, you know, day after day after day, waiting to for someone to help him into the pool, you know, and, and really the pool had nothing to do with it. He just needed Jesus. And that's the same thing. So I'm, you know, I'm in this mental hospital and actually my behavior got worse because I learned more bad behaviors to to do it was not faith based um, it, it at all it was me based and so I actually left there on day twenty eight worse than when I went in and um, just lost and broken depressed um, ended up going to counseling and uh, you know that really didn't help a whole lot either again that was not faith based but just just totally lost totally lost. Um, and it was about this time, again, trying to find my identity, trying to find my place, that I had this opportunity to find my birth mother. And so um, I ended up stepping into that because I thought, now this will be the thing. This is, you know, this is what I've longed for my whole life. I'm going to actually find this woman who looks like me. I'm going to see where I came from. I just, in my mind, it was going to be this this fairy tale story. And I think what I really wanted out of it most of all is I wanted her to look at me and say, I'm so sorry that I gave you away. I would have done anything to have kept you, you know, and for her to have realized what it was that she missed. This was going to finally be the thing that was going to make me whole. It was finally going to be the position that I'd been looking for. I'm finally going to be in the place where I belong. And so I met her went and spent some time with her and her family. And it did not take long for me at all to realize that this was not going to be the thing. You know, we have a relationship now and it has, you know, kind of somewhat come, not full circle, but we've had a relationship all these years. But what I ended up having to deal with was the truth of the matter is that she did not want me and that she would not, if she had it to do over, she would not have kept me. There was guilt, there had been worry, but she that is that is not what she wanted. And this thing, I had put all my eggs in this basket, and I thought that it was going to be, you know, this was going to be a dream come true, you know. And yes, I did get to see somebody who looked like me, and I did get to learn some about my history and where I came from. But to be honest with you, having grown up in a different family and then expecting this of, of my birth family... I didn't feel like I really belonged to either one. And I really spent my entire life kind of in between two worlds. Now, that sounds really sad, but I'm going to take a pause in here and, and say something really positive. And that is, I don't, don't feel bad for me for that because the Lord has used that in my life to keep me, you know, unattached to this world, really. And because of that, I have had no choice except to only find my identity in Him, to only be attached to Him. And because of where I am now and the call that's on my life, I know that this has even been a part of that plan. For me to have grown up like this, to have felt like this, has enabled me, to has empowered me, and given me the skill set that I need to do ministry in the way that I do it. So I'm not saying that He intended for me not to belong anymore. Anywhere, but I think that he has taken all things and used them for good 
because, and according to his purpose, uh, because I have had to be completely dependent upon him. And so, you know, I thought that this was going to be the answer, and it wasn't. And and I ended up even finding out more things that were disturbing, you know, about my life, about where I came from, that even caused more question. Um, now I know that I know, you know, all these years later, that God's going to even use this to use me to even lead some of these people in my family back to Him. But because I was not whole and well at this time when I met my birth family, again, all this did was cause me to go into a further depression. I mean, you talk about depressed, anxiety, hopelessness, still this feeling of not belonging because I still, even though I'd given my life to Christ, I was still in prison. I still didn't, I wasn't walking in freedom. I wasn't walking in liberty. Um, So this ends up leading me to um, getting married uh, to a guy because I felt like this was going to be better than the situation I found myself in. He seemed to have it all together. He was older than I was. He had a good career. He had a home and and I had this, I'm, I'm, you know, a single mom of this biracial child. And so this led me into yet another toxic relationship that I ended up, you know, marrying a guy because, not because he had been you know, the one that the Lord, I think, had set apart for me, but because I saw him as another opportunity for me to feel whole. This was going to be another way for me to find my identity. You know, he seemed to have his life together. He had a career. He had a home. He was older than I was. And it made me feel important and it made me feel desirable, you know, and, and I've struggled with that my whole life. And and it also, you know, I'm a single mom of this biracial child and this, okay, this is an answer to you know, being a single mom, you know, this is going to give us this family unit. Well, that's not what happened. You know, he had a really hard time accepting my daughter who is biracial. And so this led to a whole another set of issues, even with her. Um, he was very controlling. We ended up having, you know, two beautiful children. Uh, but because he was not grounded in his faith, there was lots of control, you know, to the point of I didn't have access to money. I didn't have access to to making decisions. Um I had my phone ended up being tapped. There were just a lot of control issues. And kind of the worst of that happened, you know, kind of the the uh, turning point, if you will, or the rock bottom place of that is I remember desperately wanting to go see family. I just wanted to get take my kids and go see my family, my adopted family. And I had no money. I had no access to money. And I had one of those big change jars that I had been putting coins in. And uh, again, back to my book, there's a chapter that's called 24,700 Pennies. And that whole chapter is about loss and restoration. Um, So I, I literally had lost, I mean, even though I was living a life that people would look at and think it was that I had everything. I was in a 4,000 square foot house in one of the best neighborhoods in the town that we lived in. My husband had a great career. I had these beautiful children. I didn't have to work. But really what was happening inside of that home is I had put myself in a situation because I didn't have enough uh, feelings of self-worth that I thought it was okay for me to be belittled and and to be verbally abused and emotionally abused and financially abused and lived that way for years. Um, 
and so it brought me to that point of taking that change jar. I was so embarrassed walking into a grocery store with my three kids and that change jar and shaking all those those coins into the machine. And, and it was 24,700 pennies is what it ended up being, just enough to, it paid my gas up there and back to go see my family. But things started to shift when I finally kind of had come to the end and I shared with my family, you know, this is this is what's going on. And I remember my mom, it was one of the, one of the most impactful, profound things she ever said to me, and I probably felt more loved in this moment than I ever did, is she looked at me and she said, Christy, you do realize that this is not normal, that people don't live this way. And it was like something just woke up and, and, and I realized she's right. And it wasn't, I'd like to say that's when everything changed, but it was the beginning of me really starting to look at myself and and really wanting to come to the end of this place that I found myself. Because every decision that I had made up to this point had to do with me on this constant search of feeling that I was that I was worthy. And I just had that had not happened. And so finally I got so desperate, got so depressed, just got to the place where nothing was working anymore. You know, all these other things had brought temporary relief, but nothing was working anymore. And now at this point, I'm divorced. You know, I'm a single mom again, feeling like a failure. But I've, you know, I've started a business at this point and I'm, you know, trying to make the most of it. And I am successful as far as the world can see. I've, I've kind of, you know, pulled my myself up by my bootstraps and uh, started a career and uh, seems to be going well. Uh, Then ended up running into uh, you know, just because of uh, recession issues, you know, the the money started running out, and it was like one of those seasons in my life where everything that could go wrong was going wrong. And I, you know, had a business, and you know, had my kids, but I was starting to have issues with my kids, and uh, just some issues with my ex husband, and then there were issues with the business, being able to pay the payroll, and came to this place, even though at the time I was serving in my church. I was uh, doing all the right things, doing my devotions, but still had not really walked into that freedom and uh, kind of came to this moment of, of really coming to the end of myself. And I remember it was like the story of the Samaritan woman where I found myself at the altar, and it was actually during a time of 40 days of fasting and prayer, and 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 just really like Jesus waited on the edge of Jacob's well. He came through Samaria. He had to. The Bible says he had to go through there. And I knew he had to come through my town during that time. And just like he sat on the edge of her well, it was like he was sitting on the edge waiting for me. And he wanted to do an exchange with me. And just like she was so desperate to not have to keep coming to that 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 well every day and her thirst never being quenched, that is the same experience that I had. I was so tired that nothing was quenching my thirst. It was like he was waiting for me there at the altar on the edge of my well, ready to do an exchange. And it was like he said, you know, if you'll give me everything, Christy, if you will give me all of the ugly, the good, the bad, the ugly, the disappointments, the fears, the doubts, all of it, I want to do an exchange with you. I want to have an exchange with you. I will take all of those things and I will make them into something so beautiful and I will use it, not just for your good, but for my glory. And there will be people 
people who will be healed as a result. I didn't even understand what any of that meant at the time, but I was so desperate. I wanted these this living water that he had. I didn't want to keep going back to those old wells that represented my past, that past behavior, those, you know, dumb habits, the idolatry and the and the addictions and all of the things, the men, the the relationships. And so I gladly, I was like, here it is, Lord, I want you to take it. And it's like we had a deal with each other that day. It was as if he said, you know, you're I'm gonna put the words in your mouth and you're gonna say whatever I say, whenever I tell you to say it to whoever I say for you to say it to. I'm like, sure, whatever you say, still not really knowing. And it was somewhere around in here where I, I actually I started teaching Sunday school in my church and really was getting my life together and came to this really sweet spot spiritually uh, where things seemed to be going really well. But then as I was alluding to, alluding to just a few minutes ago, came to this place, you know, I had my own business where it was like everything just seemed to start kind of falling apart. And some of it had to do with with our economic situation in our country at that time to where the money was starting to, to kind of run out. I was having trouble making payroll. So financially, I was in trouble. Uh, in relationship, my kids were kind of going crazy at this point. And then that was affecting my health. I had a hot water heater that needed to be replaced. I didn't have the money to do it. So my kids are having to take cold, cold baths in the middle of the winter. So it was just this whole thing. It was so many things I don't have time to say right now, but it all led to this moment where this thought came into my head that there can't be a God because a good God would not, after all I've come through and after the exchange that we made, and I'm doing all of the right things, I'm tithing, I'm doing my devotions, I'm going to church, I'm I'm teaching, I'm serving, I'm volunteering, I'm trying to lead employees to Christ, I'm trying to lead customers to Christ. How can all these things be happening to me? And so, you know how it is, you know, when all of these things, it's like it takes one thing and it's like the straw that breaks the camel's back. And one thing happened this one day and it doesn't even matter what it was. And I'm at my business and I had had it. It was done. I was over. Got my stuff, got in my car. My best friend happened to call me and I just said, I have to tell you, she knew something was wrong. She felt something was wrong in her spirit. And she called me and I said, I don't know how to break this to you. But there is no God. This has all been a fairy tale. And in my mind, when I came to this conclusion, it was like I had already felt the darkness before. But when you come to the conclusion that there's no God, which that means there's no hope, then you talk about a dark, dark place. The next thought that came into my head is, how can I take my life? And of course, you're thinking, why would you not consider your children? I did. But because I was so messed up in my head and because I was listening to the wrong voice and I was not staying at the feet of Jesus and I was looking at just what my natural eyes could see rather than what my spirit eyes knew, it's like at this point, I'm listening to the wrong voice. And so I am thinking to myself, my kids will be better off without me. So I'm sitting here fantasizing about how I'm going to take my life and just felt such darkness. I went to my to where I lived and I went into my bedroom and I threw myself on my bed and I started crying my eyes out into my blue and white pillows, which is important because that you'll understand in just a second, but I'm on the bed and it's like, I wanted to cry out to God, but I decided he didn't exist. So who do I cry out to? And I'm angry. I'm angry. I'm hurt. I'm devastated. I'm desperate. I don't know what I'm going to do. And I looked over and my eyes caught sight of my Bible on my nightstand. 
And with a really bad attitude, I grabbed a hold of it and I'm like, Ugh, what do you have to say? Well, you don't have anything to say because you're not even real. But I let myself open up the Bible to where it fell open to, which I don't recommend because it always ends up going to uh, Leviticus or something. But in that particular case, it opened up to Isaiah 54. Isaiah 54 verse 1 says this. This is what I read. It said, sing, O barren woman. And I laughed kind of out loud and I said, well, you've at least got that part right. And I started kind of reading through that chapter. And you know, it's all these promises. It's these promises for my children. It's telling me to enlarge my territory, to stretch my tent pegs wide. In other words, all this is going to come. This prosperity is going to come to you. This growth is going to come to you. And I'm like, wah, wah, wah. I don't want to hear any of it because I have stood on your promises. I don't want to hear any more promises. So I was just done and over it. But then my eyes landed on the most negative verse in that chapter. I think it's Isaiah 54, 8. It says, but for a moment, I hid my face from you. And I don't know what it was about that scripture, but that was the verse that spoke to me. And it was like God himself was saying to me in that bedroom. He said, Christy, I have never left you. I have never forsaken you, but I have been quiet because I have some growing up for you to do because of what I have in your future. You're going to have to start learning to dig deeper and finding me on your own and without waiting for the next word on Sunday. But I am taking you places where you're going to have to be able to come back to this moment and find me for yourself. Well, that night, my best friend made me go to choir rehearsal that night. I didn't want to go. I still had a bad attitude. I believe that God was real at this point, but I still had a really bad attitude. But I went to choir rehearsal that that night feeling nothing. But I felt the Lord at the last song at choir rehearsal. I felt Him saying to me, Christy, if nothing gets better, if I don't change another thing, what are you going to do? And I felt my arm still feeling nothing, as heavy as lead, raising up to him. And I heard myself saying to him, Lord, if you don't do another thing for me, I will still worship you. I still will praise you. And I will still tell everyone that I know about you, still feeling nothing. Well, I had a couple crazy friends who loved me enough, just like the friends in scripture who did whatever it took to get their friend to Jesus. I had some friends who chipped in and and paid my way to go to a women's retreat that weekend. I didn't want to go, but they almost duct taped me, threatened to duct tape me to make me go. Bad attitude all the way. Get all the way up to this retreat. And the speaker, she gets up to start to preach the word and she's fumbling and she's nervous. And, and I, I've heard her before and it's not like her, but she ends up shutting her nose up and she says, I don't know who this is for, but I feel the Lord prompting me to say, for all the tears that you have cried on those blue and white pillows, I have captured every one. I have never left you. And I want you to know that I began to melt in just melting. And then the next thing she says is, I don't know who, I don't know why, but I feel prompted to read Isaiah 54. So at this point, I'm in the floor and the people around me are in the floor as well. And so what's so important about that is, is God used all of those terrible things to bring me to that place. you know. And it was not just for that moment, but it wasn't just for me. But I want you to know there was a whole room full of women at that conference who knew what I had been walking through, and God allowed them to witness 
this whole process, which we all ended up in the floor, and the glory of God was so strong in that place. And he used this, and and that makes me think of that scripture that what the enemy meant for my harm, he meant for good, but not just for my good, but for the saving of many lives. And that was the beginning, I believe, of where I actually stepped into what God has called me to do, and that is to be a preacher and a speaker of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's so much more to my story. There's so much more, you know, to how I ended up here where I'm at in ministry right now. But where I want I want to kind of close right here and we'll pick this back up at the the ministry part in maybe the last few years. I'll pick that up at another episode. But what I really want to impress upon you today is that we are all held in the grip of His grace. You know, that scripture in Romans 5, 17, it talks where death once held us in His grip. How much more are we held in the grip of His grace when we believe upon Him? I want you to know that before you were even a thought in your mother's womb that He had a plan for your life and that He has set you apart and that no matter what you've been through, whether it's divorce, poverty, you know, church bullies, um, you know, church hurt, whether it's been maybe you have had an abortion or you have been, you know, maybe like me, maybe, you know, I hear these stories everywhere I go where people, you know, have survived the attempted abortion, you know, maybe from the bloodline that you came from, you know, part of what I found out recently about my bloodline, you know, and this is while I've been active in ministry just in these last few years i found out that my my birth father you know he is a prophet a seer for the other side in other words a prophet for satan a prophet for the dark side so when when i find out you know you talk about kind of like bringing back those old wounds of feeling that I was a mistake, that I wasn't supposed to be here, you know, and, you know, God had healed me from that. But then on top of it to find out that this is what I, where I came from. So all of a sudden, boy, did I really feel unclean again. It like took me back. And, you know, but this time when, when I was given that knowledge, it was like I knew to get to the feet of Jesus immediately. And I cried out to him and I was like, Lord, what does this make me? You know, what does this make me? And as clear as he could, he said, listen, little girl, listen, baby girl. And he calls me that because I'm his favorite. He said, listen, the moment that you made that exchange with me, the moment that you accepted me, that bloodline was broken. It is my blood that runs through your veins. It is royal DNA that runs through your body. And so I say to you today, I don't care what you've been through. I do care, but it's irrelevant what you've been through, what's been done to you, where if you feel it's an impossible situation, I am here to testify to you that you are also held in the very grip of His grace and that He has a plan and He has a purpose for your life. So why am I telling you all of this? You know, my looks like my sad story. But again, like I said before, don't feel sad for me. And I'm not saying it to you for you to have compassion for me, even feel pity for me or anything like that. I am I am sitting here telling you this because like the apostle said in Acts, because of what God has brought me through, because of what he has held me in the middle of, it would be impossible for me not to tell everybody everywhere I go about what Jesus has done for me. 
And that's what he wants you to do. And so I am here to step out and say, you know what? You know, again, we are overcomers by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony. And the purpose of this podcast, Making Waves, you know, it's waves are made one ripple at a time. And so if one of us at a time steps out in faith and tells our story, which will be the very thing that will break the chains off someone else. You know, so then maybe two people go out and tell their story. That's how waves are made. And so I want this to be a place where we have honest conversation, where there is no holding back, where we can tell our give our testimonies because we know that that the people are going to find their freedom in that. So part of also why I tell you this story is because Without this story, I would not be doing what it is that I'm doing today. All of these things have led up to this calling that I have on my life. And so I say that to you today, you know, your your greatest anointing comes from the places of your greatest pain. Your greatest ministry comes from the places of your greatest pain. And so my hope and prayer for you today is that through my own testimony, that you will see that God has a plan and a purpose for your life. He has a good plan for your life, not plans to harm you. And that in Genesis 50, 20, where it says that what the enemy meant for evil, God means for good, not just for you, but for the saving of many lives. Where death once held us, we are now all held in the grip of His grace. I want to thank you for being with me today on Making Waves. I truly pray that this has been a blessing and an encouragement to you. If you'd like to hear more of my story or even use my book, Held in the Grip of Grace, as a Bible study in your church, you can get that from Pathway Press in Cleveland, Tennessee. You can go to their website at pathwaybookstore.com.